Hey, assalamu alaikum, peace. It's Imran here. Now, the number one topic that has been requested that I speak about is my divorce. Well, you're in luck because that's exactly what this episode is about. Now, you'll probably notice that the pace and tone is a little bit different to the norm. It's a bit slower and it's a bit more somber. And that's simply to do with the weight of the subject. I've had to revisit thoughts and feelings that I haven't considered in a while. Probably not an episode to listen to whilst you're whizzing about your daily chores, and maybe one to wait until the evening when you have a quiet moment. Here I talk about the concept of divorce, the process of going through it, the emotional journey that I've had to undertake over the last nine years, and some of the things that I've learned. You'll also hear about why I believe emotional compatibility supersedes having common interests, why you're probably wasting your time searching for your soulmate, and why until death do us part is most likely a myth. Don't judge it until you listen to it. I do hope you enjoy it. I do hope you get something from it. This is episode 10. I'm getting divorced. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark at the end. Of a stone, there's a golden sky and the sweet silver sound of a love. Walk large, sturdy cardboard boxes, half filled with files, books, plates, and DVDs. Open black bin bags of bedding, clothing, toys and cushions spill out across the staircase and landing. Once loved inanimate objects, stripped of any purpose, or meaning. The 
the kitchen cupboards hang half open, as if raided by a thief in the night. Dust now casts a ghostly outline, where a framed fake Monet once proudly hung. The skip on the drive, now a temporary yawning mobile morgue for life's detritus. It's 4am, and I've neither slept nor eaten. I'm weary, bewildered, and on the point of collapse, mentally and physically. Only my spirit keeps me upright. Dawn is breaking, and in just a few hours, a removals van will arrive to methodically and apathetically relocate unrequited hopes and dreams to a corrugated steel self-storage unit on an unremarkable industrial estate in Manchester. No one else lives here now. They haven't for a while. A house where once stood a home. I stagger around from room to room, searching for the once familiar, standing outside the adjacent bedrooms where my children once slept, one pretty pink, the other sky blue. I catch a brief glimpse of us all, sat on the floor, giggling and reading the Gruffalo at bedtime. I pass the lounge, now a shadow of its former self, stripped bare of the statement goose down corner sofa, custom made wooden Venetian blinds and low slung glossy off-white cabinets. It feels abandoned and accusing. Suddenly the muffled shrieks of children emanate through the glass patio door there's a party taking place. I'm stood over the barbecue and on the immaculate lawn, surrounded by fruit trees, children I no longer recognise innocently play on the swings and slide. There are close friends, acquaintances, family and neighbours. It could be a birthday or perhaps Eid. I can't really tell. Eventually the chatter dies down, the skies darken, and everyone fades away. The garden's empty, overgrown, unloved, and sorrowful. The barbecue a grotesque, rusting exhibit, evidence of a time that life forgot. The silence only broken by the overflowing drain I never got round to fixing. But it's too late for that now. The time for fixing things has long since passed. What's broken can never be mended. And so it's time to leave. Even though I don't really know where I'm going.
Divorce. Noun. The legal dissolution of a marriage by a court or other competent body. Verb. Legally dissolve one's marriage with someone. Separate or disassociate something from something else. Typically with an undesirable effect. Even the word sounds harsh, doesn't it? Divorce. It's even harsh in Arabic. Talaq. I guess it is harsh. It's not something that anybody really plans for. Although, pulling up the latest stats on the number of marriages that end up in divorce, it's about 50% in the United States and about 42% in the UK. I always used to joke that, yeah, those are the people who actually had the guts to go through with a divorce. What about the rest of the people who are still together who are unhappy? And I kind of used to argue that there is a a minority of people out there who are married and actually happily married. And that's a very sceptical way to think about things. But I guess that's what happens when you go through a really painful experience. It's kind of once bitten, twice shy. And it has left a sceptical residue on me, even now. Well, you might have guessed that because I've been single for for about nine years. And even when I say that, that sounds really odd because I'm married for 10. So I've almost been single after marriage for as long as I was married. But this nine years has gone really quickly. Yeah, that's strange. The concept of divorce Islamically is enshrined. You know that. It's not say, the way it's considered within Catholicism, where marriage is sacred. We've mentioned this before. Marriage isn't sacred Islamically. It's a contract between two people. And when that contract is broken, you're both free to move on and do something else and get together with somebody else if that's what you decide to do. The other thing to understand about divorce is that it is not a fixed moment in time. Although legally that might be the case, but emotionally it's the complete opposite. Divorce is a process. And it actually begins before you're legally separated. Because clearly, by the time you've got to the point where you are going down legal channels, there would have been a period where you had decided that that your marriage should no longer continue. And so divorce begins before you enact it. And it continues afterwards as well. And it takes different forms. It expresses itself in different ways. And depending on who you are, it will leave you with a legacy. It's like any traumatic experience in life. It offers you an opportunity. An opportunity to learn. And as I say, that's with any traumatic experience. But divorce is extremely particular. Because I don't think you can psychologically prepare and emotionally prepare for what you go through. I don't care how resilient you are, if you haven't gone through that process before, it's quite shocking. 
I sit here now, nine years on, and I look back and I think about all of the things that we had to go through to get to this particular point, all of the compromises that needed to be made, the ways in which I behaved, the things that I had to change. And I guess you can fall into one or two camps when you are in that position of being single again. And there are two extremes. You can be arrogant and believe that the situation has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the other person. Or you can wallow in self-pity and believe that it was everything to do with you and that life's not fair. None of those are healthy. And I kind of made a point and a commitment to myself that I wouldn't simply ignore what had happened before. And I don't think anybody should. And I firmly believe that it is the toughest moments in life where you learn the most about yourself. It offers you the opportunity to hold yourself to account and then begin the process of reconciling and resolving those things which you brought to the party which are unhealthy for a future relationship. Call it a period of self-reflection. Now, how long that lasts is down to the individual. There's no scale. We're all different. We've all had different experiences growing up, even within the same family. And we all process emotions differently. And this is an emotional journey. And if it isn't an emotional journey, then I think there's a problem. Because again, as you all know, my belief is that we are on a journey of self-discovery. And that self-discovery can only take place when we're willing to have really difficult conversations with ourselves about who we are, who we were, and who we want to be. The process of divorce, in my case, was drawn out. We decided to do it, sat across the dining table in a very dark place, and we were both completely empty. We could see it in each other. Empty to the point where if we continued, and we spoke about this, if we continued trying, we would probably damage ourselves in the process. And that would be too risky. Too risky for ourselves and too risky for our family. And so we decided that it's time. We've done all we can. My suggestion was that I leave the family home. But her suggestion was that she couldn't stay in the family home because there were too many, too many memories. And so she left. And at the time, in order not to cause any further hurt, I agreed to allow her to take our kids, who were nine and seven at the time. And I remember it quite clearly, that moment when she left. It didn't feel real. And I was supportive. When I say supportive, I wasn't clapping her out the door. I just made sure she was okay. She had somewhere to go. But I do have regrets about that moment because I think the kids should have stayed. Just that that was the children's home and they had their, their own rooms and their own routines. That's why I suggested that I should leave the home. I thought it would be easier on her and on the children, but... I could understand that she didn't want to be in that environment anymore and so she left with the kids and stayed temporarily with a friend and I was left in a five-bedroom house by myself. And if I'm honest, if I think back to that time, I actually can't remember a lot about it. 
can't remember exactly how I felt. But I can't imagine it would have been a lot of fun. Sleeping in a double bed. By myself. None of the familiar noises. Just silence. Having to cook for one. Shop for one. I guess at the time I didn't take it seriously. I didn't think that it would be a permanent arrangement. Because we'd had bust-ups before. We'd had times where we'd spent uh, moments apart. But this, this was clearly something more serious. But I guess I was in denial. I thought at some stage she'll calm down and then we'll talk. And then maybe she'll come back. But as time went by, her resolve stiffened. And to be fair, I, was, I wasn't making any huge effort to reconcile at this time. Remember, we'd been through this process many, many, many times before. We were both empty. It was the last resort. And we felt we had to follow it through. But there was always this lingering idea that maybe. There's always that maybe. And this is a really important thing to consider. It doesn't matter how bad your relationship is. You're never... Actually, no, let me correct that. Relationships can be bad, but if you've invested so much in them, there's always a 1% chance. There's 1% of hope. And your head might tell you there is no hope, but something inside tells you there is still hope. And I guess that's where the denial comes from. So as her, you know, as her resolve stiffened, she found a, a flat that she started renting. And we got into a routine of two people apart. But by this stage, we hadn't gone through the Islamic divorce proceedings. I hadn't pronounced a talaq. She hadn't got a khullah. So we were still in this kind of marriage limbo. We were kind of stuck. Because I was waiting for her to act and she was waiting for me to act. Although we had both decided. But throughout this period, we remained cordial, even friendly, towards each other. Because... We had two wonderful children, and it was important for us to to prioritize them. And so a week became two weeks, two weeks became a month, a month became three months. And even then, although I wouldn't say anything, there was the 1% there, because we're not divorced yet. And I remember I was at the house working, and the doorbell went, and it was her. And she came round, which wasn't anything out of the ordinary. Um, you know, clearly she had things there, and she would come and go. And then I opened the door and invited her in, and we sat down. And then there was a moment of silence, and I could tell something was going on. And then she took a deep breath and opened her purse and pulled out a paper. And it was, it was a divorce paper, a form to sign, to go through with it. And she passed it to me tearfully. And I took it and I unfolded it and I, I read it. It was from the local Islamic center. And it was, um, it was from an imam that we both respected and knew very well and we both had to sign it to say that we were going through with the divorce 
And that kind of moment is frozen in time for me. I can't remember exactly what it said on the paper, but I think it was green ink on white paper. And there was a space for her and a space for me to sign. And her part was already signed. So now it was left for, left for me to complete the job. And we just sat there and we talked. We talked about how we'd got to this point and the fact that we couldn't really believe it. But that it was our only option left and that we had to see it through. And I wasn't going to second guess how she was feeling and she wasn't going to second guess how I was feeling. It was just something that had to be done. We had reached the end of the road. And instead of posturing, it was now time to act. And so I took the pen and signed and folded up the paper and gave it back to her. And we just sat in silence. It's a bit like mourning, really, mourning a death. I guess we were, the first moments of our divorce. I might have cried, I, can't, I don't know, I'm pretty sure she did. And then she left. And again, it didn't feel like what it was. It felt sad. It felt really sad. But I don't think anything can prepare you for what happens after that moment. Because it really is the next chapter. Now, from an Islamic perspective, a woman has her idda period, which is three menstrual cycles. After which, she is free to do as she pleases in terms of marrying somebody else. And so I guess that was at the back of my mind. I thought, well, there's a three-month period here. It's a bit of a buffer zone. And in that three-month period, you still have the possibility of reconciliation, which would render the document null and void. But those three months passed, and that was that. Both of us living in emotional limbo, carrying a 10-year marriage around with us and everything that we went through, it doesn't pass in three months. It stays with you. From my perspective, I was pretty devastated. Because my background, if you remember, is one where, within my family, there isn't really a history of divorce. My parents didn't. I mean, they had a typically first-generation marriage which was institutional. It wasn't necessarily about deep love all the time. It was what you did, and it is what you endured. And so that is the model, that is the socialising model that I grew up with, that marriage is something to be endured even though you're not happy. So when it did finally end, I was in uncharted territory. And emotionally, I took it quite badly. And the way I expressed that was not to rant or rave. It wasn't to lash out. It wasn't to be petty. It was to turn inwards. I didn't have many people I could express myself to or share my feelings with. So I just held it all in. And I did what I normally do, actually, which is I became, became Mr. Duty. You have to do your duty. And for me, that means setting aside how you're feeling and doing what's right. And so I may have felt, and I did, I, I, I did feel all kinds of negative emotions. But I prided myself on being in control of that. But I misunderstood being in control of those emotions as suppressing them. So I wasn't really in control of them but I'd suppressed them. And that suppression wasn't great for me. It meant that I was stuck in time. 
not pining for anything. I was, you know, the fact that we had divorced wasn't something that I wanted to reconsider. It was just that I didn't know how to move on at all. I didn't know how to process those negative emotions. And so I just sat with them and I went through the motions. And a lot of people will talk about feeling like the living dead. And yep, I can understand that. Because it's with you when you wake up. And it's with you when you go to sleep. It clouds every aspect of your life. And I guess I, was, I wasn't in the arrogant camp, but I was in the self-pity camp. That I should have done better. That I had, that I had failed my marriage. That I should have done more. That my children were going to suffer because of me. I'm telling you this now, but this was an internal monologue that was going through my mind and lots of rumination and unhealthy circular thinking. How, how did it look on the outside? I guess I looked pretty normal. Human beings are really good at masking, masking how they really feel, or they can be. I'm pretty good at that. And so it would mean, it would mean going to the flat, being polite, having a laugh, yeah, everything's great, everything's fine, yep, yeah, yeah no, I'm not bothered by being divorced at all. What time do you need the kids picking up? Yeah, that's good with me. Yeah, are you going to drop them off? That's fine. But under the surface, there was turmoil. And I only really had one person to talk to, and you can probably guess who that is. Yes, that's right, it's Ilyas. He is my go-to guy, <laughs> and probably knows me better than... Well, not probably. He does know me better than anybody else. And what he taught me is about the process of dealing with grief. And it is grief. Normally when we think about grief, we, we associate it with the death of a person. Divorce is the death of a marriage. It is a death. It no longer exists. And he taught me that you're going to go through, or you are going through, the stages of grief. But he made me aware of those stages. He said the first one is going to be denial. You're going to act as if none of this has happened or that none of it makes a difference when clearly it does. But it's the first thing that we do. We deny that it's happening. And he said once you've worked through denial or denial has worked its way through you, you're going to be angry. You're going to feel rage. And it might not be about her it might be the fact that you have no control over this situation anymore. It might be a multitude of things, but you're going to feel significantly angry. And small things are going to get under your skin. And you're going to behave in ways in which you don't recognize. And it's because something has happened that you did not want to happen. Something has happened which has destroyed your vision of the future. Something has happened which you can't get back. And after a while, that anger will subside. And then you'll move on to bargaining. You'll understand that to be angry is to your own detriment. And so you'll start to think about the things that make you angry and reconcile those things. Why are you divorced? Well, sometimes it happens and nobody's to blame. What will it mean for your children? Why have you, why have you done this to them? Well... We both felt that having children in an unhappy marriage is worse than having two people who are not married, who both love their kids and prioritize them. So you begin to bargain with your circumstance. 
you begin to readjust how you understand what has happened in a healthier way. And then there's the period of depression, where you enter into a dark place. The weight of everything that's happened is too much. The vision of the future is unclear. The past seems like a mess. And the present seems stagnant. And so you live with that. As difficult as it is, you live with it. And the weight of it pushes you down and down and down. And I think especially for a bloke, it's particularly tough because we don't generally, well not in this country anyway, have a culture of talking about these things. And I know it's a bit cliched that men need to talk more, but it's basically true. Now that might surprise you listening to my podcast that that might be difficult for me because clearly I can talk. That doesn't necessarily mean that was the case nine years ago, specifically in terms of what I'm going through. It's not that I was stubborn in not talking, it's just that I needed people to trust and I didn't have those people, I only had one person. And Elias, God bless him, is available for me, but he wasn't around the corner. So there wasn't really anybody to, to share that with. And then finally, after you've gone through the denial, the anger, the bargaining, the depression, you arrive at acceptance. You accept what has happened. And I guess that acceptance could be considered the moment where you're ready to move on. That you are at peace with your life and you are now looking forwards and not backwards. How long does this all take? I guess that's one of the questions you might have. You probably know the answer. It's different for different people. We all know those people who exit one relationship and within a month or maybe weeks, they've got together with somebody else. I could never understand that. Never in a million years can I understand that. Now, I might be wrong. I'm no expert. But if you've gone through a relationship and it hasn't worked out and it was a significant relationship, not a fling, then surely surely anybody would want to think about what's happened there and to take some time out and to reflect and to speak with Allah and ask for guidance and to be patient. But no, there are, there are some people, don't want to be stereotypical, but I generally see it amongst men, Muslim men, Muslim men who have children and who have been married for a long time. They divorce and then they're married pretty quickly. Now, clearly, people approach relationships in different ways. For me, a relationship has to have a strong emotional component to it. Now, if you're not that way inclined, if you see it as more functional, then I guess you see it more as a process. But for me, I don't see it that way. A relationship for me has to, has to be about an emotional bond and everything good stems from that. And so when you ask me, look, how long did it take? Well, I can't really tell you, but it was... It was years. And that was compounded, actually. That was compounded by a number of things. See, when I, when my marriage ended, at the time, I was earning probably about five, six grand per month and living in a five-bedroom house, detached, and I'm married with, with my kids. The divorce financially completely changed everything. I mean, a divorce is an existential crisis. It feels that way. But on top of that, my work situation was changing. Or I was changing my work situation because I was dissatisfied in what I was doing. 
So in the space of a few weeks, I lost the house, the wife, the family, and my job. So, yeah. A lot of, a lot of heavy things at once. And so I guess the fact that it took so long to arrive at the better version of me was because all of these things were happening and they all felt like existential threats. There are a lot of people who believe that divorce is a dirty word, that even though it's halal, permissible, and you get quoted this a lot, it's something Allah dislikes. And there are many hadith, sayings of the Prophet, peace be upon him, which people repeat when it comes to divorce. I have a particular take on it, and it's this. Divorce isn't a dirty word, but the way people feel about divorce stigmatizes it. And the way divorce is practiced and the aftermath of divorce is normally ugly. And I wish that wasn't the case, because the reality is in the world that we live in now, the likelihood of you getting married and staying married for your entire life or until you or your partner passes away, I think it's slim. And I think it's slim because we live in a globalized society. Now, what's that got to do with anything? Well, if you go back 50 years, pre-digital and pre-mass migration, who you married was generally from quite a small group of people and your expectations were not as high. As uh, one of my favorite TED Talk uh, speakers, Sir Ken Robinson, said, uh, he's from Liverpool, he said, well, you'd basically go out into the village and you'd see somebody and think, you'll do. <laughs> yeah, that's quite romantic, isn't it? You know, you just see somebody think, yeah, why not? It's something you did. If we fast forward to today, we have the paradox of choice. We have apps now. We have people delivered directly to our mobile phones. And they're not, they're not particularly sophisticated, these systems, yet. But they show us what's on offer. We can go window shopping. We can create ideals. And even those of us who say we are not looking for ideals, we still look for them. And so in a globalized world, we come across people whose culture, upbringing, class, family are things that we've never really encountered before. Is that a good thing? I'm sure some of you are thinking about the Hadith uh, where the Prophet, peace be upon him, said that he recommended that people marry outside of their tribes in order to strengthen the blood. But the practicality of marrying people who are that different to you is significant. You see, I was married to somebody who was white English. I am brown English. <laughs> I'm a second generation immigrant. And I thought I was pretty broad, that I had some depth, that I had seen the world. But even for somebody like me, marrying somebody of a different, different ethnic origin who clearly had a different culture, was a challenge. And actually, the imam who provided us with the divorce paper, lovely guy, he does a lot of, it's not Elias, but he does a lot, he's, a, he's an Iraqi, and he does a lot of divorces and marriages. 
I asked him, I said, do cross-cultural marriages work? And he looked at me and said, brother, nine out of ten times, divorce. That was his experience. Now, I guess some of you won't like hearing that. Because we're all Muslim, right? It shouldn't really matter, should it? Whether we're white, African, Far East Asian, Latin American. We all come together under the banner of Islam. Whilst that's true, it's also true to say that that is not enough. Because the reality is, Muslim relationships have the same problems as everybody else on a day-to-day basis. And it boils down to, and take a note of this, emotional compatibility. Emotional compatibility, which is something that hardly anybody understands or talks about when they are looking to get together with somebody. If you're not emotionally compatible, then your marriage is not going to work. It doesn't matter whether you are both staunch Diobandis or Brelvis or Salafis or Sufis or Hanafis or Malikis or whatever. Because it's the emotional side of the relationship that will keep you together. There are some people who who require a lot of compassion. And they require a lot of compassion because of the the emotional legacy of the way they've grown up. Without that compassion, they become highly insecure. And then that insecurity leads to a particular type of behavior which is unhealthy. How well you understand yourself and how well you can empathize is critical. Two things, how well you understand yourself and how well you understand other people emotionally, which is empathy. Now the question is, how do you get to know yourself? How do you develop empathy? And that is a difficult question to answer. Because clearly life offers us the opportunity to self-reflect. It offers us the opportunity to educate ourselves. But do we take them? Do we really take those opportunities to do that? Because if we don't, you're doing yourself a disservice. And potentially doing somebody else a disservice when you get together with them. Now, in the last episode, you heard Tariq and I talking about this to a certain extent. We touched on it because he got together with somebody pretty soon after he divorced, whereas I haven't. And I was arguing that, well, you do need to take this time out to better understand yourself, to reconcile those and purge yourself of those qualities that are unhealthy. He countered and said, well, actually, he got together with somebody and it was with that person that he recognized that he was following a similar pattern to his first marriage, and so he changed his behavior. Is one right? Is the other right? No, there is no right answer here. But having that intention, having that awareness that you need to take stock of who you are, what your emotional triggers are, why sometimes you irrationally behave or feel angry or allow other people to take advantage of you, or are needy, or are haughty, or are distant. There is so much to learn. Maybe you want to watch a video. YouTube's full of them. There's countless books that are available. So take the opportunity to do it. You know, I get emails from people saying, 
that they're unsure about getting together with other people and asking me my advice as to what they should do. And again, I repeat, I'm, I'm not really in a position to do that. I normally just defer to Ilyas and ask for his opinion on these things. But how many of those those letters that I get talk about emotional compatibility? None of them. And if there's anything you take away from this podcast series, it's that. You want to be attracted to somebody? Of course you do. That's a basic. Does it matter that you're both into healthy eating and growing your own food and going to festivals or going to Islamic talks or you both want to have four children, uh, that you want to live in the countryside, that you like taking long walks, going to the cinema. Yeah, all of that stuff's great, but it's not as important as two people who are able to hold each other emotionally, to support each other, to bring the best out of each other, to be patient with each other, to show compassion. And if there's anything you're going to that I would suggest you spend time doing when you're looking for a partner, it is to look for those things, look for that emotional compatibility. So the first thing that makes it unlikely that you're going to stay together with your partner is the fact that, yes, there is this trend towards divorce, there is a lack of emotional education in society in general, and I'd say especially amongst Muslims, because there is this lazy thinking around uh, we are of the same faith, so that should be enough. We have a globalized world where we can now pick, and therefore the pool of people is larger, and therefore we have this paradox of choice. And so we are overlaying, we are projecting onto other people what it is we want them to be and believe that we can find that. We also have a kind of culture, culture or movement of romanticism which has been around for the last 150 years, so relatively new, where some of us, I'm guessing mainly women, are looking for the one, that there is somebody out there that is destined for them, that will make them whole. And this is just infused through, through music, through art, through film, poetry. It's everywhere. And it's unhealthy. Because it doesn't exist. I'd like to believe that in any one square mile of where I am, there is probably someone that I don't know about that I could have a healthy relationship with, a good enough relationship with. Yeah, that sounds really romantic, doesn't it? Yep, you're good enough. But that's the point. Why aim for perfection when it doesn't exist? No one's going to make you whole. No one's going to make you happy. But there are people out there who are emotionally healthy, fun to be around, attractive, and on the same page as you. There's lots of people out there. So you should have hope. I have hope. Nine years on, I have hope. My personal circumstance means that it's difficult to search, and maybe we'll get onto that in a future podcast episode. I'm sure we will. But I am hopeful. Because I do believe that there are numerous people out there who at the right time, in the right circumstance, because time and circumstance, I mean, this, these are important things to consider. Remember, love doesn't conquer all. It's not the panacea that it's made out to be. That there are people out there, many people out there, who I could form a healthy relationship with. So yes, globalization. 
paradox of choice, the culture of romanticism, all of these things mean that I think we should accept, and I think Elias has mentioned this before, that maybe some of us, maybe a lot of us are going to go through more than one relationship in our life. And so what does that mean? Does that mean you are a failure? Well, my marriage failed, but whether or not I consider myself a failure, that's something completely different because life is full of failure. I was saying this to my daughter today when I was talking to her about her exams. I said, you know, life's 99.9% failing at things and it's okay because it's when we fail that we have the opportunity to learn and we have the opportunity to grow, which, which I've seen. I've seen that in myself. I've seen the things that I now do and think and am and feel, which are, a di which are positive and a direct result of having gone through the experience of a divorce. Am I a better father now than I was previously within the marriage? Yes. Am I more empathetic towards, towards women? Yes. Am I more conscientious in my approach to life? Am, am I taking it for granted less? Am I showing more gratitude? That's the better way of putting it. Yes, I am. Is my relationship with Allah closer because of it? Yes. Am I more patient? Am I wiser? Am I more balanced? Am I more emotionally healthy because of my divorce? The answer is yes. Emphatically yes. Did it need the divorce for that to happen? I don't know. For me, I think so. Because I was stuck. I was stuck in a way of thinking and feeling and behaving and acting. I had a sense of entitlement and all of that was broken down. Allah gives us problems sometimes because working through those problems leads to wisdom. On that day at the house when I was waiting for the removals van I was in a dark place and I didn't really do much apart from wait and fill boxes and tie black bin bags. And then there was a there was a knock at the door. I wasn't expecting anybody. And I opened it and there she was. I thought you might be hungry, she said. So I invited her in and we sat down. And she'd brought around two Belgian chocolate tarts from Marks and Spencer's. And we made a cup of coffee and we sat down on the sofa and we talked and we reminisced and we made a promise to each other. We promised we would do what's right by our children and that although we were getting divorced, our family would stay together. And breathe. <laughs> that was a, that was quite a heavy episode, wasn't it? It was quite difficult to record as well. I guess if you're listening to this, then you did enjoy it. Well, either that or you're you're a glutton for sober punishment. Either way, I'd love to hear from you. I always love hearing from you. Please email me at divorcedmuslimdad at gmail.com or direct message me on Instagram or Twitter 
at M-O-I-A-Z-A-M. Now, moving forwards, I do want to make some changes to this podcast series so that I can get more regular stories out to you um, rather than once every three weeks. So that might mean different content types, such as uh, books that I'm reading and some of the concepts that I think are useful to Muslims and relationships and parenthood. And also, maybe also include some of the letters that you do send me. Don't panic. I'm not going to include anything I haven't been given permission for. I will request it before I do that. But those are just a, a couple of ideas. If you have any others, then please do share them with me. I'd love to hear from you. As always, thanks very much for listening. If you did enjoy it, please do share it. And I'll see you next time. Assalamu alaikum.